David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Dear listeners, this podcast episode contains a few moments of sound interference. We apologize for any inconvenience this may cause and hope you still enjoy the talk. Right. Well, thank you for, for coming back, those of you who came back from last week to see the sequel, uh, the second of, of four parts that we're looking at. And we left it at the end of last week that I kind of finished off by saying, yes, well, this was the main thing going on. And then over the course of the next couple of decades, it all went bad. The rise of Assyria and eventually the Northern Kingdom was vanquished. That's the picking up point from what I want to talk about tonight. Those of you who've tragically looked at the notes or have uh, any concept of... uh, what I'm going to aim to do in the next hour or so will realise that it's ultimately quite foolish. It's foolhardy because what I want to cover tonight is possibly not merely uh, the greatest spiritual revolution within Jewish history that still very much impacts upon us today, but it's a revolution within world spiritual consciousness. And I want to talk, uh, first of all, I'm going to background historically for 10 minutes to really give us an understanding of the challenges that are being dealt with by the main figures we're going to talk about tonight because everybody in this room at some level or another is familiar with the prophet Isaiah. You're going, oh yes, I've heard of Isaiah. Some of you might even have a of the prophet Yeshayahu. Some of you might even have a more in-depth knowledge of Yeshayahu. Anyone who goes to shul, anyone ever go to a shul? Yeah? Anyone who goes to a shul, often enough, will invariably hear a haftarah, uh, which is a chapter or two of Isaiah, and you will be familiar with kind of the, some of the themes that Yeshayahu talks about. Put up your hand if you do know a little bit about the prophet Yeshayahu, about the prophet Isaiah, beyond having heard of him. Some people might, uh, I don't want to assume any knowledge, because then people uh, get confused. So I'm going to go through it quickly, but I'm going to start from absolute basics. We talked last week at the end about how here, in minus 720, is the vanquishment of the northern kingdom. The Assyrians who are a great big power that have come from the east, they come and they literally ethnically cleanse the entire area. In fact, they in much better like this. They ethnically cleanse the entire area and that is the end of the kingdom of Israel. The ten tribes that formed that kingdom have been taken away and we haven't seen them since. That obviously meant that a lot of people, thousands, perhaps even tens of thousands, actually managed to flee that catastrophe and go south into the southern kingdom of Yehuda, the southern kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom of Judah was comprised, had been not formed so much as left behind by the division of the kingdom. It comprised the tribes of Judah, which was the dominant tribe, and the tribe of Benjamin, 
priests and Levites as well, of course. They had the Davidic dynasty that was leading them. So it had much greater political stability than the northern kingdom. And as well, they had the capital of Jerusalem, in which there was the temple. This period, this entire period is what we call, is deep inside what we call the first temple period. They would have come into the society of Judah at a time, interestingly enough, where there were some considerable reforms taking place. What were these reforms? These reforms were being implemented in Judean society at the time of the destruction of the Northern Kingdom as a direct consequence of what was happening in the Northern Kingdom. In the whole of the Bible, in the whole of Tanakh, in the whole of the history of these kingdoms, There were only maybe three or four righteous kings. Most kings were awful. Most people, when they get complete and absolute power, are awful. There's a lesson of history. And that was no different in relation to the kings of Judah. goes without saying the kings of Israel were mostly awful. But even the kings of Judah were not always nice. However, at the time of the destruction of the northern kingdom, these people coming south would have encountered a Judah that was undergoing a type of spiritually minded religious reformation. And that was being conducted by a king, one of the big famous kings that you've all heard of, but we're going to place him historically now. He's right here. And that, of course, is Hezekiah, who we might call in English Hezekiah. Hezekiah has been sitting on the throne for a few years and he's actually witnessed this horrendous event that's happened in the north. And so the influx of people force him to have to do a few things. They have to do a few things. One of the things, of course, is they have to do a whole engineering exercise to expand the city. Now, we know this not only because the Tanakh tells us, and not only because other sources tell us, but because his engineering products and projects are still there. You can see the base and the foundations of the walls that he built. When I say the walls, don't get confused. I'm not talking about the walls that go around the old city. This is deep within the old city. Some of us who've been to Jerusalem know that the old city is not a terribly large place. But in the time of Hezekiah, even something like the Armenian Quarter would have been a flash new suburb. We still have the foundations of the walls that Hezekiahu built. And he built them not only to define the city, but because it was very clear that the entire Middle East was going through some sort of transitional turmoil and it wasn't a bad idea to shore up the defences of Jerusalem. Similarly, that remarkable tunnel that was built by Hezekiah's engineers that would enable water to be brought into the city and in fact eventually building more walls 
to encompass that water source so that it would not be available to any encamping enemy and so on. Quite a number of engineering feats. We still have them. That is the result, to some extent, of the pressures placed upon Jerusalem. Hezekiah is aided in his reform, and his reform is not simply engineering. His reform was also a kind of religious spiritual reform. Hezekiah outlawed any official cultic worship of the God of Israel outside of Jerusalem. That was a very, very big implementation. That's the only place that we're going to have the forms of worship that we have in the temple, so that religious practice can be conformatized. That's not a word, I just made it up, but you know what I mean. And can be standardized and we can know what's going on because when people are left to their own devices, they come up with all sorts of strange ways of doing things. So we're going to focus on Jerusalem. We're going to refurbish Jerusalem and the temple. Now, Hezekiah was aided in this project by a remarkable individual that by the time of Hezekiah had already gained status as a prophet. This man, when he was a lot younger, opened his prophetic career by having a vision. His name was Yeshayahu, Isaiah, the son of Amotz. There is a fairly strong indication that he was, in fact, connected with the royal family itself. He may well have been a cousin or a cousin of the king's father. The king's father, of course, was... Who was Hezekiah's father? Okay, that's good. That's good. That's good. Now I'm on... Now I'm on safe ground because no one knows what I'm, whether I'm making it up or just saying it, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with it. Now, the ki- Hezekiah's father was a king called Ahaz, or Ahaz, as we might say in English. Ahaz, he had a father, and his father was a king called Yotam. And Yotam's father, that is Hezekiah's great-grandfather, was a very big king back here called Uziah. Uziah was a contemporary in the south of the king that I spoke about last week, Yerovam Jeroboam II. Remember I spoke about Jeroboam II, had this great big long, stable, successful, prosperous, 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 peaceful and economically productive reign and for several decades and similarly in the south Uziah had had a similar reign until one day this is going back this is several generations before the period we're focusing on but it's important to understand the context several generations before Hezekiah his great-grandfather Uziah had woken up one morning, probably a Tuesday, and had wandered down to the temple with a group of about 80 soldiers and walked in and said, today I'm going to offer the incense on the altar. Remember last week 
As part of the historical backgrounding, I spoke about these tremendous tensions between the Melucha, the kingship, and the Kehuna, the priesthood. This came to an absolute head on the day that Uzziah announced that he was going to do something that only priests in the temple are allowed to do. This was part of the official way in which the uh, worship in the temple was carried out. There were certain things that non-priests could do, but offering the incense was not one of them. The Torah is very clear on that. Only the descendants of Aharon can offer the incense in the temple. And Uzziah said, that's going to be my job today. They said, I don't think so. They said, oh yes, and I've got 80 soldiers with me who will agree that it is my job. And they said, well, there's a few hundred priests in here who won't let you do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to have this little civil war in the temple unless you turn around, apologize and leave. Because in the temple, you might be the king, and we respect that, but you do not have control over what we do. And Uzziah says, I don't care. And he heads towards the altar to pick up the incense to offer it, when suddenly, remember last week I spoke about this ginormous, epic, once-in-five-millennium earthquake? Remember? Seismologists and archaeologists will tell you today. They, they, they see the evidence of that earthquake. That was an enormous earthquake. That happened right then. And Uzziah turns around and there's, there's, a, there's a breach made in the wall and the sun comes through the wall and hits Uzziah in the face and he turns around to face everyone and everyone goes... <gasps> Because he suddenly is leprous. And he has to be immediately removed, not only from the temple precinct, but from Jerusalem itself. His son, Yotam, takes over and is a co-regent with him. Uzziah is living outside the walls in a leper colony just outside the walls of Jerusalem. The king is living there. And inside Jerusalem, on the throne, is his son, Yotam. Some years go by, and Uzziah dies. It is, in fact, that is why you will understand, when you open up chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah, when you go home tonight, and chapter 6 is kind of the chronological beginning, you will open it up and you will see it begins... Bishnat Mot HaMelech Uziyahu, in the year of the death of King Uziyah, Va'ere et Adonai, I saw God. This young man has, is in the temple, he's not a priest, but he's in the temple precinct and he has this phenomenal vision. We have two or three immense visions of the divine in the Bible, to be interpreted in whichever way we can. But he sees the Lord of hosts on the chariot in the temple, seeking someone who is going to deliver this new form of understanding to the people of Israel and to the people of Judah. Isaiah says, you can pick me, I'm up for that job. Fast forward a bit later... And your tum is actually eventually deposed by factions in support of his son, your tum's son, 
Hezekiah's father, who is Ahaz. By now, the Assyrians are deeply on the rise. In fact, they've already started ravaging the northern kingdom. And a pro-Syrian faction who believes that it would be in the best interests of the people of Israel to align themselves with the new superpower has put Ahaz on the throne. Ahaz is a total suck-up to Assyria. So much so that even on one visit to Assyria, he saw a nice altar over there and he goes, that looks like a nice altar. I think I'll have that altar rebuilt back in Jerusalem and placed in the temple. Ahaz actually overrides by force any other concerns and starts rearranging the temple furniture and the temple practices according to the new kind of Assyrian-Israelite synthesis. But still... He's the king of Israel, and he's a Davidic king. And then the kingdom of the north, together with their neighbours, the Arameans, decide that they are going to resist Assyrian control. And in order to prove that, they're going to invade Judah. Ahaz is very, very worried. These two kings are going to invade Judah. And as he's deliberating what he's going to do, he is met by the prophet Isaiah, who tells him, this is the next time we pick up Isaiah. Isaiah is already an older person by now, and suddenly he's in the picture. And he says to Ahaz, here's what the God of Israel tells you to do. Relax. Chill. Don't do anything. Because in the next short few decades, the entire geopolitical situation of the Middle East is going to change. Ahaz is contemptuous towards prophetic messages, but it turns out exactly as Isaiah predicted. These two kingdoms are eventually vanquished by Assyria. Assyria eventually totally destroys the northern kingdom, by which time Ahaz dies, Hezekiah is on the throne. That is a bit of historical background to understanding where we pick up the real story of the prophet Yeshayahu and our challenge is to understand why his unique circumstances that I'm about to talk about affect the profundity of what he said and what he was trying to communicate on behalf of God. Hezekiah's got some issues. He's not just having to rebuild Jerusalem and reform the society to be more authentic to the purpose of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. But, like all executive leaders, he has a geopolitical reality he has to manage. There's no northern kingdom anymore. That could be a good thing, because then we're not going to get hassled by then. But the Assyrians have completely repopulated the place, and the Assyrians are constantly on the move. The Assyrian Empire was an old-style empire. 
It wasn't an empire that we would recognize today that might conquer you and then maybe replace a few things, but basically leave you to manage yourself and salute their flag every day and send off some soldiers to support them in their wars and pay a few taxes. The Assyrian Empire was still of the old school. That is, we come, we conquer, we pillage, we kill, we replace. So the Northern Kingdom now was completely in the control of Assyria. And Judah was left, as the prophet Yeshayahu says, was like a little hut in a vineyard that was under siege. It was a little island of independence. And the only way that Hezekiah was keeping the Assyrians at bay was by paying a massive tribute. He sought for a while, perhaps to make an alliance with the last semi-power in the region, which was Egypt. And the prophet Isaiah was told by God, <laughs> check this one out. Remember last week, I explained the concept that a prophet is a person, not a microphone. Sometimes their lives have to be lived to express their message. And we looked at the prophet Hosea last week about what he had to do to express his message. Shayal was told to walk around naked for three years. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a rabbi today walking around naked for three years going, well, I'm expressing God's uh, message over here. If you don't understand the allegory, I'm sorry. I know that, you know. Seriously. In order to warn the people and to express them not to make any alliances with Egypt. And in fact, not to make any alliances with Assyria either. You are, the prophet Isaiah reminds the people and the king, you are God's chosen people. You are chosen for a particular destiny. Your destiny is to live in the land of Israel and to build a society based on justice and righteousness. And if you do that, that is the only power in the world. Who do you think is bringing the Assyrians? Who do you think vanquishes nations? Who is doing this? You think that these things happen by themselves throughout history? Or is something unfolding that you are to learn from? Once again, last week, we saw that God demands justice from all nations. But in the times of Yeshayahu, the situation is becoming so radically transitional that uh, it's very clear that something is going on. Some change is afoot. There's going to be some major structural changes. And Yeshayahu says the only reason the Assyrians are even pressuring us at all is not because of the actual reality, but because of what is happening in Judean society itself. What do you mean, what's happening in Judean society itself? What does it mean when Yeshayahu turns around and says to the nation, 
in the opening verses of his book, Hoi goi chote am keved avon. Woe, a sinning nation, a people heavy with iniquity. What are those words doing at a time of religious reform? What are those words doing in the decades leading up to that reform? What is going on? What is corrupt? What is problematic in the society of Judah? Isaiah does not talk much about idol worship because idol worship was a little problem in Judah but not a big problem. It wasn't like it was in the northern kingdom where we see, and I spoke about this last week, see a direct relationship between idol worship and social injustice. The pursuit of power for its own sake from gods who you believe are that power and give you that power. Instead of realizing that the only power in the world is universal righteousness and justice. What is wrong in Judah? And what is fundamentally wrong in Judah, according to Isaiah and the other prophet I'm going to speak about briefly, Micha, is that there is a fundamentally flawed conception of religion itself, of spiritual life itself. Fundamentally flawed. And in order to understand the flaw, we just need to step back a moment. Because the Assyrians are back. The Assyrians conquered everybody. And when they didn't have anybody left to conquer, they went and conquered them again. If the Assyrian emperor didn't go out every summer to conquer someone, then his advisors and executives would call him a leftist and that would probably be the end of his career. You have to go out and conquer someone. And there's this one little dot left that we haven't conquered yet. And that is the kingdom, the independent kingdom of Judah. They're paying us a bit of tribute, but at the end of the day, they remain unconquered. several thoughts are lining up about what I want to say at this point because people read this and they study this period and they don't realize how critical it was. This was effectively, look, in order to control the world, has anyone here tried to control the world? In order to control the world, empires realize, and this is another lesson from history, you have to control Jerusalem. We may sit here and go, ah, oh, he's giving me the Australian Jewish news picture again, that, you know, everything's about us. Well, it kind of is. Yerushalayim has always been held by the most powerful force, political and militarily, in the world. Always. And when that force is no longer the most powerful, they exceed control of Jerusalem to the next superpower that secedes them, succeeds them. That is the way it has always been. The Assyrians 
I'm not saying they knew this consciously, but there was a deep desire to control Jerusalem and control the kingdom of Judah. And they came into Judah en masse. They destroyed 46 towns and cities in Yehuda, including the second largest city, which was No, the second largest city in Yehuda was Lachish. And some of you might be sitting there going, Ah, oh, he's showing off now that some minute, some place I'm supposed to have heard of in Tanakh that was the second largest city. I'm telling you, that's not a small point. We know not only from the excavations at Lachish, the totality of that destruction, but when they uncovered all the frescoes on the walls of the palaces of the Assyrian kings back in Assyria, archaeologists found an entire wraparound 40-foot frieze depicting the conquest of Lachish. It was a big battle and they left no survivors. That was the second biggest town in Yehuda and the Assyrian army was composed of roughly a quarter of a million men under arms. They really were an unstoppable force. They came into Yehuda, they ravished the country, and eventually, of course, they come to the walls of Jerusalem. Hezekiah is saying to his prophet Isaiah, the prophet Yeshayahu, I know I'm switching between the Hebrew and the English names, I'm sure that won't be too confusing, but Hezekiah says to Yeshayahu, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? This is the end. This is it. The Assyrian army encamped outside Jerusalem looked like a sea of humanity to the people inside the walls and all they could see was the sparkling in the sun of shields and swords and the colours of an invading army. Nothing but the walls of Jerusalem which eventually would be broken down, stood between this army and the end of Jewish history. And this is the end of Jewish history. There's no kind of diaspora in America or Europe or anywhere else that's going to carry on. This is it. And Yeshayahu says, God says, relax, chill, not your focus. Your focus is creating a society of righteousness and justice because there's only one power in the world. This is not overly convincing to his Kiyahu and his cohorts. And eventually a representative of the Assyrian king stands next to the walls and shouts at the people of the walls to demoralize them starts giving them speeches. They say to him, excuse me, could you please give these speeches in Aramaic and not in Hebrew because we don't really, you know, everybody on the walls understands. And the Assyrians go, that's the point. We want them to understand. Do you really believe, they said in the name of Sancherib, do you really believe that you will withstand this force? 
every single nation that the Assyrian army has conquered has said before we conquered them, before they died, our God will save us. Go and tell your king that unless you surrender the city and capitulate completely, that we will overrun this city, destroy it, and kill him and everyone else. What do you think is going to happen here? And then they sent this in the form of letters. And Hezekiah took these letters and he went to the top of the temple. And he opened them up to the sky. And he said, God, if you're going to do anything, you'd probably better do it now. <laughs> Says Yeshayahu in that famous chapter 9, after he describes incredible tension leading up to this event. The nation that was walking in darkness, they saw a great light because the next morning everybody peered over the walls and the Assyrian army was gone. There are various accounts. According to some accounts, they were dead. According to other accounts, they were just not there. There are different Variations. The Assyrians talk about this event as well as the Tanakh talking about this event. And historians talk about this event. We have different perspectives on it. We're not sure if they went away to fight another war, if they were ultimately paid off somehow, or if in fact there was a mutiny and actually a civil war within the army, or whether a plague came through or an angel of the Lord came through, as the Tanakh tells us. Either way, these 250,000 men were gone. This was a phenomenal, miraculous salvation that didn't just uh, establish Hezekiah's credentials, but also the incredible credentials of the prophet Yeshayahu, who had stood absolutely firm. Because he saw tremendous problems in Judean society. Judean society was still, despite Hezekiah's best intents, was still being run as some kind of political reality that thought that material pursuit and economic gain was more important a principle than social justice. And that because we had the God of Israel on our side, because at the end of the day uh, we've got the right God, therefore we're going to be okay. But that was a deep, deep, deep misperception. Having the right God counts for nothing. Having the right God counts for nothing. If your relationship with that God is, has got nothing to do with what that divine wants, what the divine wants. Despite these deep flaws, it was enough that Hezekiah humbled himself and the society he represented before God 
and ultimately came to the realization, as we will inevitably have to do, that <laughs> there is no power in the world. There is no power in the world other than the power that sustains justice and righteousness. It's not only the only eternal power, it is the only power in the world that matters. In chapters 36 to 39 of the book of Yeshayahu, these events are described in great detail, exemplifying and illustrating this very point. And of course, Hezekiah, soon after this, becomes very ill terminally ill he wasn't happy about that and uh, the prophet Yeshayahu came into the palace to see him and he said to Yeshayahu what's going to happen your prophet good at predicting the future what's going to happen and Yeshayahu said gently you're going to die uh, in about three days and Hezekiah was pretty upset about that. And uh, Yeshayahu turns around, the prophet turns around, starts walking out the palace. And Hezekiah turns around and he faces the wall. And in one of the most stunningly simple and amazing tfilot prayers in the whole of Tanakh, says to God, you know, I, I, I've tried to live righteously. Why am I being taken now? Let me, just, let me just do a bit more. God's very, very moved by this beautiful prayer. And before Isaiah's even out of the building, he gets the call on the cell phone from upstairs. Go back and tell him he's got another 15 years. So he goes back and he tells him he's got another 15 years. As a result of this miraculous recovery, many kings and dignitaries visit Hezekiah. It was quite a big business to recover from a terminal illness in the ancient world. I can tell you it's still a big deal. In the ancient world, there's an even bigger deal. And uh, <coughs> they come and they visit him. And one, one of the kings that comes from a distant place to visit him comes from a place that no one's even really heard of very much, a place not too far from Assyria, similar part of the world, but had been kind of a minor player till now, and that was a place called Babylon. And Hezekiah showed Muradach Baladan, the king of Babylon, all of the different things, gave him a VIP tour of Jerusalem, showed him the temple, showed him the temple treasures, showed him the kingly treasures and whatever, after which Isaiah comes to him and says, not a good idea. You were a bit too proud and haughty with all those treasures. And every single thing you've shown him will eventually be taken away by them. Maybe you don't need to be a prophet to realize that. But there is something deep in the way that Yeshayahu talks about what we regard as the pursuits of leadership and of kings, these kind of treasures and built up stores of resources, they matter for nothing. Remember what we looked at last week in Hosea and Amos. If you run a society and a world based on just principles and on righteousness, nature itself will conform with human desire. But I haven't got much time, but we have to get deep into understanding what he means by that. What he means by that.
Now, I'm just going to take one minute. I'm going to take one minute, and I don't want you or anyone else running out of the room screaming up your courses. All right? I'm going to bracket this. I'll say it, but you didn't hear it. And that is, as you know, the book of Yeshayahu, the book of Isaiah, which is 66 chapters, is a complex business. And historians and scholars have been crawling all over it for ages. It is, of course, not only one of the most sublime pieces of literature that we have ever given to world literature, it's phenomenal. And while I'm on that subject, you know that it's written in Hebrew, right? And to read it in Hebrew, I mean, David Ben-Gurion's famous remark, to read the book of Isaiah in any other language other than Hebrew, is like kissing a beautiful woman through a handkerchief. That might be fun for some. But, and is not without its benefits, but at the end of the day, I encourage anyone who can, and you all can, to open up your mind to the possibility of reading the book of Yeshayahu in Hebrew, because it is sublime beyond imagining. But it's a very complex book. There's not universal agreement on where all of the different prophecies and chapters happen in terms of the historical unfolding of the life of Yeshayahu. And therefore, that has led some people to speculate that it may not actually all be the one book, the one author. The other remarkable thing about Yeshayahu, of course, is that the Yeshayahu, the Isaiah that appears in the Dead Sea Scrolls, is exactly the same as this uh, that we're reading. So, in other words, it has been the same book for a very long time, but it may have originally had different layers of composition. One of the reasons why some people think that is because from chapter 40 onwards, there is a kind of a shift that some people think is talking about events that are much later than this period. Now, within the traditional framework of perspectives on the Tanakh, that's not a problem because Isaiah was uh, a prophet. So it's not a problem for him to be talking about matters that are 100 years or 150 or 200 years later. But scholars are a bit nervous about that, and yet there are many, many coherent perspectives on the book that show that it is in fact a unified text. There's no real reason why it could not have been composed by Yeshayahu, but I'm here to tell you, as you will see and those of you who know, that from chapter 40 onwards, <laughs> Yeshayahu explodes in this phenomenal ecstatic vision that is the real core transmission of his message from the divine. And what is ultimately at the heart of that vision? And in order to understand that, there are three or four, I'll put it over here, there are three or four basic thematic developments. And we know, obviously, at the moment in the calendar year, we're reading the seven. Haftarot of Nechemta, of comfort, all of those are taken from those chapters from 40 onwards of Yeshayahu in the most sublime and lofty language. He describes 
what can happen. What can happen. The prophets of Israel and perhaps Yeshayahu more than any other prophet pick up on this idea that was alluded to in Hosea. This idea that it is possible to return to an authentic existence. It is never too late. However awful an individual or a society is, human beings are granted the opportunity and the gift that if they undergo a genuine process of inner transformation and inner understanding of the importance of being something as complicated as a nice person, they will not only transform themselves, but they will transform the people around them. This is a fundamental tenet of truth of the prophetic message of Israel. If you transform yourself, you will transform those around you. If you transform those around you, you will eventually transform your society, but it only starts from you. That transformation will never happen unless it starts happening with you, internally. And if you transform the society, then it's possible to transform the world. Everybody, almost everybody, I'm not on Facebook, but everybody that I know, almost everybody I know, almost, and that's not that many people, but almost everybody I know has become, in the 21st century, at this particular juncture in history, quite jaded and cynical about the concept of world peace. Nice idea, they say, but naive. Nice idea, but unattainable. The Star Trek universe is beyond us. We're never going to get there. Not true, says the prophet Isaiah. Not only can it happen, it will happen. It will happen, says the divine. It's just a question of whether your generation is the one that's going to make it happen. But happen it will. But it starts from every individual transforming themselves, transforming this. And what's the critical point here is that the society upon which this all depends is that very society that I have placed at the center of the world. The Jewish people have no other role than to be, and it's an expression that's known by all of you, but its origins are in chapter 42 and in chapter 60 of Isaiah, to be or la goyim, a light to the nations. Your, if your perception of God is that you have the God of Israel, therefore you have the truth, therefore everybody else can go to hell, you have got it wrong. In fact, back in the days of Jeroboam, a prophet from the northern kingdom 
was actually sent to Assyria in order to preach this very message. I'm talking, of course, about the prophet Yonah, who we're not going into now, and his life becomes a kind of adumbration of the people of Israel themselves and the exile they have to go through and come out of in order to realize themselves this particular message. That transformation of the world by creating a transformed society that is founded on not on power, but on powerlessness and on the pure revelation of justice and righteousness, that society that affects the world brings in this thing that Isaiah is going to talk about and the other prophets of this age are going to talk about the concept of a messianic age. What's remarkable is the link between this world event, whatever it's going to look like, the messianic age, and the personal transformation of the individual. Those two ideas are fundamentally connected. In doing so, and obviously I don't have time to go into all the details of all of those 26, 27 chapters of Yeshayahu, which are phenomenal, the ecstatic vision that he gives. And when you read it, you will cry because you'll realize that you never read, you never actually realized what the prophets of Israel are saying about this period. There is no question <laughs> that if we were to try and apply Isaiah's picture today, then the first thing that would have to happen is the realization, this is contentious, this is where you won't come again because I'm saying what I'm about to say, all right? Understand, put your seatbelt on. If I see you next week, it means that I got away with it or you didn't understand what I'm saying, but here's what I'm saying. Is to stop treating Yerushalayim as the problem, but the solution. Obviously, Jerusalem has to be internationalized. Obviously. Why? Because it has to be the spiritual capital of all nations. The United Nations needs to be there. And all nations come to Jerusalem to be, have their conflicts resolved. The Jewish people simply run that project for the world. That is our purpose in the world. It is not to sell arms to Nicaragua. It is not to spend all of our resources ruling over another people who are only there because of our own corruption. Our project is to bring peace to the world because we have an aligned and authentic concept of the power of God in the world and that power can only be expressed in the everlasting values of justice and righteousness. This is the massive vision that Yeshayahu is giving us that very, very few people are understanding, even if they're reading it every week. Okay, take your seatbelt off. I'm just gonna... I need to... Um... Because as part of this... If... Here's the bit that I'm, I'm going to be sorry if I don't explain this well enough because I, I, I really this is the key the key point is is that last week we looked at the way that Hosea and Amos universalized the concept of God 
But in Ishayahu, what is universalized is not merely the concept of God, but the concept of God and Israel. Israel is part of the universal picture. It is not a particularism within it. We are not simply a nation, a weird, neurotic, ethnic nation that is trying to find its way in the world. We are an inner and integral part of the entire spiritual objective of the world. We need to realize this because we're not going away. And our children's children's children will still be here doing that project. But at some point, it will take effect when people truly understand what the Nuvim are saying. You know, from chapter 40 onwards also, Yeshayahu is talking about this concept. And this has caused a few people to go a bit archi-parchi, but he's talking about this concept of the faithful servant. And he says, Avdi Israel, Israel is my servant. Now, I know that most people in this room did not ask to be part of the Jewish nation. We just are. But the reality is, is that the Jewish people are chosen not to be better however where they come to the Jewish people, either by being born into Am Yisrael or coming, attaching yourself to Am Yisrael, that Am Yisrael is given this mission, and this mission is, in a way, a servitude towards the divine, with unbelievable infinite rewards, but it is a type of servitude towards the divine. And Isaiah talks about Israel as the faithful servant. One of the reasons... Uh, well, one of the interesting facets to come out of that, as I'm sure some of you know, is the fact that Isaiah, perhaps more than any other prophet, has been picked up by um, the Christian church over many, many centuries in order to prove the correctness of their interpretation of the Bible and the validity of their particular saviour. And especially when you get to the servant songs of Isaiah and uh, the real t-shirt material is, you know, chapter 53 and so on. And if you, uh, many, many Jewish people unwittingly have listened to the missionary standing at the front door and have opened up Isaiah 53 and gone, oh my gosh, how did I not see this? It's all about him. Except that the missionary didn't tell you to also read chapter 52 and chapter 51, and chapter 50, where it puts this entire thing in perspective and in context. And Isaiah is telling you many, many times, the servant throughout history is the Jewish people. This famous, famous argument was, of course, made a cornerstone of the discussion in many medieval disputes between Jews and Christians, and even to the point where, in the most famous of the medieval disputes that some of you might have read up on, the famous one by Nachmanides in Barcelona in 1253, in the of Aragon, against public Christianity where he turned around and he made the argument that in fact the Jewish people are Jesus that didn't go down well I'm sorry that this is distracting in other words without focusing on the identity of the Messiah or the mechanics of how that works out, uh, Ishayahu is more focused with what the implications are of this vision of the world at peace with Yerushalayim and the Jewish people at the centre of that 
universalist project, then human history, in a sense, can really begin. But it all stems from the concept of Teshuvah, the concept of inner transformation. This world can arrive if we all look inside ourselves and seek authenticity and seek correct relations with other people based on justice and righteousness, individually and collectively. Now, I haven't adequately covered Isaiah, but I just want to move for two minutes on to the other prophet that I want to talk about, the other Navi, because Yeshayahu has a younger contemporary who is also around this time. You will find throughout this period that the Nevi'im pop up in clusters around righteous kings. So the righteous king is Hezekiah, and the two big Judean prophets that emerge from this particular era, the era of the full-on Assyrian conquest, which, by the way, Isaiah predicted would eventually, the Assyrians would eventually be Geshmas themselves, which, of course, they were a century later by the Babylonians. But as well as Isaiah, we have the prophet Micha. And when you open up here we go. Here we go. I can feel it welling up now. I can feel it welling up. So I'm going to apologize in advance in case I get a little bit too much. Because Micha is like the Isaiah is a big book. But it's like the whole of Isaiah condensed into seven short chapters. It's like a high octane Isaiah turbo on crack in seven chapters. And in the very beginning, he's from a place called Moreshet, which is in the southwest of Yehuda, and he's seeing all these events. He's younger than Isaiah, but he sees, uh, he certainly sees uh, the event of the delivery of Yerushalayim and so on, but he is, he's actually living a little bit beyond Hezekiah as well, so he sees some of the things that are going to happen after Hezekiah. By the way, um, just before I deal with that, I should probably tell you so that you know, that um, one of the reasons, according to the rabbis, and according to the sages and the interpreters of Tanakh and traditions that we have, is that one of the reasons why Hezekiah became terminally ill, or despite having been a righteous king, was that this was in form of punishment from God for the fact that he had never married and had children. Why did he not marry and have children? Because he had foreseen in a vision that if he was to have children they would turn out to be very wicked. It's an interesting facet of history that some of the most righteous people have some of the most wicked sons and daughters and children, and vice versa. Some of those wicked people have incredibly righteous children. But he saw that he was going to have wicked children. He says, I know how to circumvent that. I won't marry and I won't have any kids. When Yeshayahu explained to him that this was probably the reason why he was about to drop dead, he said, Yishayahu came up with an idea and says, well, listen, how about you marry my daughter? That way, right, you're a righteous king, she's the daughter of a prophet, what could go wrong? And of course, they had, he had two sons, uh, and one of them became king, and of course, that was King Menashe, who ruled for the next five and a half decades, who was one of the most awful, despotic, horrendous kings that we've ever had. I mean, he was multiple evil and uh, so in a way Hezekiah's foreboding about that uh, was right therefore the prophet Micha is living in 
talking about the decades leading up to Hezekiah, but also the aftermath of, of that whole turmoil. And uh, he's trying to find the reasons why the precariousness of Yehuda is constantly being threatened. Why are we not living as we should be? We, he knows that if we live this authentic existence, that we'll be okay. Why are things always going wrong inside the society? Ah, oh, says Micha, I've worked it out. <laughs> and he's right. So when you open up the book of Micha, you've got to be prepared for what he tells you. Because he fully blames the leadership of the Jewish people that have taken this people completely astray and taught them inauthentic values. Kings, priests, scholars, rabbis, people of spirit, you are the ones that have led these people astray, let alone, and how much more so, the leaders of commerce and industry, who are really only in it for what they can get away with. All of you are scheming about power. All of you are scheming about power. You are threatened by your little territories. Micha tells you this. You're lying in bed at night going, how can I screw him over so I can keep this? And yet, oh no, you say everything's going to be okay because you have the temple, because you have the right God. But no, God is going to come with unbelievable force and prove to you that you are deeply wrong. So, says the prophet Micha, what are you supposed to do? And then he utters the very, very famous verses that we know from chapter 6 of Micha. Micha, by the way, is not also without his incredible visions, messianic visions. Different language from Mishael, but just equally pure and sublime about what the world will look like, but also what the role of the Jewish people is within that messianic framework. But ultimately, in language that is so double entendre, it's incredible. Does God want thousands of rams? With myriads of rivers of oil? Should I give my firstborn? Should I sacrifice my firstborn for my sin? Should I actually, you know, give the fruit of my womb in order to atone for the, for the uh, sins of my soul? This is an unbelievable adumbration of the Christian perspective on forgiveness and and the relationship that one can have with the divine on that level, which is completely and absolutely and totally wiped and dismissed by Micha in the sentence, in the next verse. He takes that whole concept, which is perhaps one step up from the fully pagan mindset that we discussed last week, 
Now you've got the right God, you've got a universal God, but you are completely misunderstanding how that relationship works. Your job is not to please God with frumness. It's not about bringing as many sacrifices as you can and doing as many rituals and saying so many prayers. And in probably the one single sentence that sums up the entire prophetic tradition of ancient Israel, that is the most sublime transformation that we all take for granted, we all take it for granted, but it is right here in Micha. He did lecha adam matov. God has told you, man, what is good. Asot mishpat. Do justice. Ahavat chesed. Be nice. Just be kind. Love doing kind things. Be a nice person. And just walk humbly with your God. Im Hashem With your God. That is the foundation of the spiritual edifice that is the people of Israel. Anything else is an inauthentic expression. Any other form of religion or secularity that takes you away from those fundamental principles of justice and righteousness and walking modestly and humbly with God are going to lead to disaster. If you are running around saying the power is mine because of my superiority in economics or technology, if you're saying... I'm in this place because I have a right to be here regardless of how I behave, then you're not going to be there for very long. Micha and Yeshayahu are saying this over and over again. Now, some people are giving me looks. I'm going to finish up. Some people are giving me looks and I'll explain why you're giving me looks. I know why they're giving me looks. I know. But I'm, going to, I'm going to address that for a minute. Because it troubles me as well. The tragedy, the tragedy of me in many ways, and the tragedy of our generation, and the tragedy of all of us, is that really this would be amazing for any other generation. This would be relevant, this would be powerful for any other generation but ours. I'll tell you why. Well, it is relevant and powerful for ours. But we have a problem in our generation. Because in our generation, we have to be in the land of Israel. We have to be in the land of Israel because history has fundamentally changed. Because the Shoah is a game changer. And however problematic Israeli society is, we have, in the famous words of Golda Meir, we have nowhere else to go. But that doesn't take away the responsibility of the Jewish people to behave as the Jewish people in the land of Israel and to seek ways in which our society, 
both in the diaspora and in the land of Israel, can be societies based on righteousness and justice. We do not simply exist as an ethnic entity because we belong there by divine right. The divine right is contingent upon a certain type of society and a certain type of behavior. This is not me saying this. This is the prophets Yeshayahu and the prophet Micha, who are not only... And Micha, Micha. Micha is the first prophet to actually say what the other prophets are going to come and say, and that is that Judah, the kingdom of Judah, will be destroyed. The kingdom of Judah will be destroyed. This was unconscionable utterance at the time. It's no less than if someone said today the state of Israel will be destroyed in the next 30 to 40 years. Even people that want to understand why would find that sentiment horrific. But Micha says it. It became such a famous prophecy that it was brought much, much later by the prophet Jeremiah, who we'll look at next week, who brings that prophecy to the king to say, don't say Judah can't be destroyed, because Micha said it will be destroyed. And if the prophet of Israel says it will be destroyed, it will be destroyed. If a prophet of Israel says that an age is coming where we will see universal peace, then an age is coming where we will see universal peace. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> and Yeshayahu and Micha tell us something else. Especially Micha. Because he says that most of Jewish history in the future will be Laila Michazon. It will be darkened for vision. People will not see. There will not be prophets. In fact, the whole of the concept of what we call Nivi'im really ends around here. We do not have this level of spiritual clarity. So all we can do is go back to their words and look at their messages and try and work out what have we been doing wrong. We are doing some things right. But we have not brought that universal age of peace yet. If you don't believe that the Jewish people can bring universal peace to the world, then you do not understand Tanakh. That's as simple as that. The prophets tell us again and again and again. So I'm hoping that at the very least tonight, you will go home. There's many, many things that I will be upset with myself that I didn't say. You go home... And if the book of Yeshayahu seems too confronting for you, then have a look at chapter 6, which is his vision in the temple. Have a look at... Read 36 to 39, because that actually kind of is historical narrative and will consolidate your understanding of what this prophet is dealing with. And then, obviously, anywhere between 40 and 66 is going to blow you away, especially on the subject of Teshuvah. Have a look at, have a look at the... I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I've got to tell you, I've got to tell you, Rabbi, that, 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 that when you reread, when you reread, this is just a conversation with me and Rabbi Ganendi at the moment, so no one else can listen to this, but when you read, uh, you know, the chapters, the latter chapters of Yeshayahu, and you talk about the fact that the concept of acceptance, the concept of universal acceptance of people, regardless of their conditions and regardless of their states, people that are seeking an authentic relationship with the divine. 
And I want to clarify that because it doesn't mean that the prophets don't think you should be in some form religious. They want people to keep Shabbat because that Shabbat is a social justice idea. Shabbat is an idea about your relationship with God and the world. It's a universal idea, but which is exemplified by the Jewish people. But the wide acceptance of anybody seeking an authentic relationship. So have a look at that, the 55, 56. The universalization of the concept of God. And then, and then have a read of Micha, which is only seven small chapters. Literally take you ten minutes to read it. And if ten minutes of reading is too much, then just read chapter six of the book of Micha. Yep. In fact, if anything I've said is too much, or if you haven't listened to anything I've said, then go home and read chapter 6 of the book of Micha. And that at least uh, will prepare you in good stead for next week when we will come back and we're going to get in the time machine and go a hundred years after this to see what the effect of this particular revolution was. So thank you for listening to that. Find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.